I will go on now to Lawrence's question on uh, time and space, uh, love and immortality. Um, his first question during an N MBT interview with Tom and Donna, Tom speaks about how time is more fundamental than space. Tom says that space is just a calculation in a computer like the War of Warcraft, World of Warcraft characters uh, in a video game. Since it takes time to switch or differentiate between two states, this can be looked on as primal time. Could space also be as fundamental as time since the time it takes to switch states would also equal to some type of potential distance to switch from one state to the other. Could there be a primal or potential space since there is a primal or potential time? Uh, no, there couldn't be. And here's why. You think that this state or that state or two different states have to be in two different places. So you have to be in this place in one state and that place in another. And those spaces, those places kind of have some distance between them. Therefore, the two different states, at two different times, or also have to be in two different places. And that's why you see those two coming together. And you, you believe that because you've always known that you, no two things can be in the exact same place at the same time, right? That's one of Newton's theorems that, uh, you know, the only one thing can be in the same spot at the same time. No two things can occupy the same spot at the same time. So these things must be, if they're two different states, they must be in two different spaces. Not so. That's true in the 3D reality. That's true in our virtual reality because we are a 3D virtual reality. That is not true in consciousness. And let me give you an example of that. Let's say I want you to think of two things. I want you to think of, um, oh, let's say an ice cream cone and a $5 bill. Okay, just think of two things. There's an ice cream cone and a $5 bill, and you can see an ice cream cone sitting in front of a $5 bill if you want or next to each other or whatever, but you're thinking of them at the same time. How much space is between those two thoughts? See? There's no space between those thoughts. Now, there can be time between the thoughts. Oh, I'm thinking this, and now I'm thinking that. Now I'm thinking the next thing. There's time between the thoughts, but how much space is between the thoughts? You see, you think, what do you mean space between a thought? I got four or five things in my mind that I'm working on all at the same time, things I have to do, things on my to-do list, and they're all kind of in there, and they're all in there at the same place, but is there space between them? Is there more space between the chores I have to do or the, you know, or the, you know, the petting and playing with my animals? You know, which, which one has more space between? Well, you realize there is no space between thoughts. Well, that's because thoughts are non-physical. Non-physical things don't have any space. There is no space between them. There's still time between thoughts, but there's no space. Thoughts don't take up space. They coexist. So lots of thoughts can coexist at the same, you know, at the same time. And basically there is no space. It's not that they are at the same space. There just isn't any space. There's no concept of space in, in thought space. And we talk about thought space, right? But now that's just a, a, a um, metaphor, thought space. It's where all the thoughts are is in thought space. Well, there is no such thing as thought space. It's just a metaphor. We have to, we have to place things. If we're going to imagine something, we have to place it as a unique 
object in space because that's the way we think. So we always think of things. That's why people who you know have near-death experiences or sometimes go out of body, they have to go through tunnels or they have to fly. They have to do other things because they have this spatial sense and they have to get from A to B. They have to travel to get there. That's just a belief that we have because we live here in a, in a reality that's always like that. So no, there doesn't. There isn't a primal, primal space. In in uh, now you think of the of the larger consciousness system, and when we think about it, we say, "All right, here's this larger consciousness system, and there's all these different virtual realities. Some of them are PMR like, and some of them are are not." Um, we have the you know the what does uh, Ted call it the virtual uh, virtual reality rendering engine that's creating all the data streams that go to all the people here and, and whatever. So in our mind, we place those things all in different places. Over here's this virtual reality and over there's that virtual reality. And when you die, you go to this virtual reality, which is up here to the right. And then there's that, that VREE virtual reality rendering engine. And that's someplace else, but that's just because we can't conceive of things without giving them a different place because that's our habit and the way we think it was just a habit in in the larger consciousness system, there is no space. There's just information. And information is non-physical. You don't need space for information. The information, how much, how much does the information in a book weigh? It doesn't weigh anything. Information is non-physical. How much does the book weigh? Oh, that's a physical thing. I can weigh the book. How much does the ink weigh? How much does the paper weigh? But what's the information? What's the content and the meaning? Content and meaning have no have no weight, have no space. So that's the information is the content. So in a, in a, when things are non-physical, they not only have no mass, they also take up no space. So they all just exist without space. And when you think about that, you think, I can't grok that. You know, how do I, I can't get my arms around no space. Well, that's because we have the habit of living here and we just can't think of things without space. That's why we make up metaphors like thought space and, you know, uh, information space and things like that. Not that that means anything logically. It's just that it gives us a something we can, we can deal with. That's why we have the, v, the virtual, virtual reality rendering engine over here and the other virtual realities over there. And in our mind, we space all these things out. There's this big information field and then there's pieces of it that do different things. And we spatially imagine it that way because otherwise we can't imagine it without space. Our imaginations just don't put everything in one pile. And then after a while, we just quit. We don't imagine it in, in piece parts and in pictures. We just imagine a thing called the larger consciousness system. And it's just all in there somehow, you know, that sort of thing. We, we give up trying to make a 3D overlay on it. So no, there is no fundamental space. Space is just a creation of our virtual reality. Here's how you make space. You take a point and you put that point someplace, which is called its origin. From that point, you can move in three different directions, all that are orthogonal to each other. That means they all have 90 degrees to each other. That defines a 3D axis. You've just defined space. Now you can put any any object or anything or any point anywhere in space as defined by that origin and those three coordinates, an X, Y, Z, if you're in the math or physics, you know, there's 
X, Y, and Z coordinates. And that is how you define space. You've just created space. By making an origin and, and three orthogonal axes, you get 3D space. And that's how you make space. That's how our space is made. It's how space is made in computers. And that's all space is. And within that space, no two points can be at the same place if it's physical space. If it's just mathematical space, you can pile you can pile an infinite number of points all in the same space. They're just all redundant. So in mathematical space, you don't have that problem. But in physical space, like we do, then uh, you have that problem. Everything has to be in a separate space to exist. So no, the, the space is not fundamental. It's just a product of our VR. But time is fundamental because without time, you can't have evolution because evolution has a before and after state. Without time, you can't even have two different states because it's a here's the state I have now and here's the state I have afterwards, you see. You can't have free will without time because free will is based on choice and there's the state after the choice is made and the state before the choice is made. So without without time, there's no choice, there's no free will, there's no you know, ones and zeros, there's no states for, for memory. You basically have nothing. So time is fundamental to existence it's it uh with no time then nothing can happen there's no progress no evolution no change everything just is and stays that way static forever nothing can change so that's dead if nothing changes that's what that's what you call dead you know it's it's not a functional a functional thing so it, time is is fundamental for anything to to function by function, we mean time. You know, it's, it changes, it grows, it decays, whatever. So that's why time is fundamental and space is, and space is not. Does, infor does information exist in space? You know, does infor when the, the larger or non-physical space, you know, like so when the larger consciousness system evolved, is space real now in consciousness? You know, like so, for instance, information, is information real? You know, does it exist? in order for information to exist does it ex exist in some type of non-physical space there is no non-physical space non-physical space is is like thought space you know non-physical space doesn't exist non-physical doesn't take up space it's not physical there's only physical space you go to a, i mean the physical space is actually virtual space right it's computed space but what's non-physical doesn't take up space now, we use those words. We talk about non-physical space. We go out of body. We go into the non-physical realm and non-physical space and go travel around in that non-physical space. That's just metaphor so that, we can, so that we can have the idea, have the thought. Because if we don't have that thought, we can't speak. You know, if we talk about it in terms of, of no space, we say, I'm going to go out. Well, you just said out. Out is a space word. It means you've moved you were in and now you're out that requires space right so you can't right. use the word out um you know you're going to go out of body you can't even say it but you can't describe it so basically we can't talk about it unless we give it sense perception vocabulary which is space you know our space and time and 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 objects and we have to talk about it like that so we talk about information space and we talk about non-physical space but those are just metaphors so that we can talk about it at all. Otherwise, we don't have any words that we can use in conversation that describe it 
if we don't describe it in terms of what it is we experience, which is space and time and solid objects. But that's a that's a bit of a mind bender. But there, <laughs> you know, but there, there is there really is no non-physical space, just a metaphor. So information, does information exist? Yes, information exists, content exists, and meaning exists, but it doesn't take up space. It doesn't take up literal space. Literal space meaning like there's a distance between points. That's space. Right. So there, there's no distance between points in, in, a, in a non-physical world. Now you get into another virtual reality, you go into some other virtual reality someplace else, and there's space there. You know, even the virtual reality that you end up in after you die here, you can walk around in it and there's some people standing over there, you know, which means they're separate from you with space. But that's because in that reality, that's how you're interpreting the data. Part of that's your history and part of that's a vir it's a virtual reality. So it's got a spatial content to it. Right. And space here and space here with with. Um... Is space here real then? You know, like, so for instance, like I'm here and then, you know, like, um, you know, like my front door would be like there. And then I know that the, that the front door exists, even when I'm asleep, you know, like my body right. is, is still taking up some type of potential space or, you know, like for instance, you, when you were saying like, uh, on the war, on the war warcraft, our space is just like that in the, in exactly. the sense that like, if you, you play the video game and like you're watching the characters, uh, start from the beginning, to the end um and beyond the the space that the that the tv screen provides wouldn't everything else the space in the world warcraft just be programmed you know like for instance if the once the character starts to play the game you know he starts at the beginning he's trying to get to the end of the maze but really that space really doesn't exist really there you know it's just like the video game as the character's running the space inside of the screen is kind of like moving to to sort of like you know, guide him through the through the game. But in this reality frame, if you know, if we all go to sleep, you know, I'm still here and who whomever else is still there and the, the door, even though like it's not really there, it's just information, but it's just the same. It's just the same as that elf. It's just the same thing. That elf walks up to a house, he sees a house, and there's somebody in there has information for him, some quest or something. He has to walk up the steps, walk across the porch, open the door, go inside. It's all very spatial. It's just numbers right. in a computer. There's no real space. It's just virtual, just numbers in a computer. You get the visual and you take that visual data, which is a bunch of little dots of primary colors on a screen, all your pixels, and you interpret that as space. Well, that's the same way it is here. We're in a virtual reality. Everything's computed. You are a consciousness. You get the data stream and you interpret that data as space. Now, the idea that, that uh, just because you close your eyes, the rest of the world doesn't disappear, it never was there in the first place. Of course, it doesn't disappear because it was never there. It's like that house. You'd say, well, if that elf closed his eyes, that house that he's going to walk into would disappear. There was never a house there anyway. It's just data. It just looks like a house. We interpret it as a house, but it's not really a house. So when there's nobody in the world of Warcraft to walk around and see anything, Nothing's being rendered. Nobody's nobody's sending data out to you know to computers that are turned off with uh, you know pixels lit up to show a house. It's just nothing right. being generated. As soon as a player logs on, well, there it is. Now he's got the whole map. He can walk around in the parts of the map he's not in. 
computer's not computing any of it because there's no need. He, they don't compute the map just to compute the map. There's, unless there is a player that is requiring the data, nothing's computed. So it's not like what happened to that house. There was a house there, and now it disappeared because nobody's playing the game. Well, no, there never really was a house there anyway. And it's the same with your body and your friend's body and the and the you know the the street next to yours. If there's nobody playing a game, none of that's being rendered. As long as there's somebody playing a game, then it's rendered. So when you wake up and open your eyes, what do you see? You see your room. You see your bed. You see all that stuff starts to come in you in a data stream. When you're asleep and you're dreaming, you're not getting any data stream that has a bed in it or a room or anything. Now you got a data, a data stream that has, uh, you know, whatever you're dreaming in it. And you interpret it totally differently. Your right. bed and room's not in your data stream anymore. As soon as you wake up, it is in your data stream now. You see what I mean? None of it really exists. The dream doesn't exist. The bed doesn't exist. Your body doesn't <laughs> exist. It's all just information that's playing in a game. So none of it is rendered unless there's a, there's a, a need for it, unless there's a user. That's right. why the double slits experiment works the way it works and why they end up saying, well, a consciousness is involved, and that's because if there's nobody making the measurement, if there's not a consciousness that needs the data, the system doesn't provide any data. And, and when no the, no. Yeah, and when the person gets around to looking at that data, then the system provides the data according to the probabilities at that moment. So they had that data, right? And we're going to get a we're going to get a, a diffraction pattern because there's no. Uh, well, let's say we could do it the other way. We have a detector detecting, and we're going to get a diffraction pattern if we look. I mean, we're going to get two two piles of. Uh, of, of uh, particles if we look because we have a detector detecting all right now we wait a little while we don't let anybody look at that data then we erase it all and then we let the person look well now things have changed now there's a there's a consciousness wants some data let's look and see what the probabilities say well the probability said there's no information about any detection ever being made the fact that it had been and now it's erased well that's history Let's look at the history. Let's look at the way it is now. There's no such detection information existing here anymore. Give them a diffraction pattern. That's the, that's the one, you see, to give them. So it works the same way. That's why we get the double slit and the eraser to happen the way it happens is because the system doesn't produce any data until there is some consciousness requests the data. Some player logs on and requests the data then they get the data that's most probable. I shouldn't say this most probable that comes out of the probability uh, distribution. They get that data at that time. So, you know, it's the double slit that tells us that it's a virtual reality. We just have a hard time believing that because we're here in it. And whenever we wake up, we're in the same room. It's not we wake up one time and we're in China. And the next time we wake up, we're floating in a boat in the sea or something. And it seems very stable to us. Well, it's stable to that elf, too. Every time you play that elf, he's walking around the same map, the same people, same monsters, same house he has to walk into. It's just, uh, you know, it seems very, very stable to that elf. He's not in a squirrely place. He's got rules to follow, and it seems to be stable. But we know because we're outside of that. We're the consciousness that's playing him. So we know that he's just a virtual elf, and it's just data because we're the conscious looking from the inside. But that's because... We're not immersed in that elf. 
we don't have 100% of our attention focused on that elf. We've got some of it focused on us and the computer and, and you know, what's, what's going to happen next in our, in our other life besides our life as, a, as an elf consciousness. So that's, that's the difference. Here you are, and you're totally immersed in your, in your avatar, which is your body. You're totally immersed in that. And the only data you get is data that you get through the, quote, virtual senses of that virtual body. You get a data stream, and that's it. You're not playing. You log off. You don't get any more data. Right. That doesn't mean that all the things you used to get data on disappeared. It means they were never there in the first place. It's just data. It's just the information comes to you as you demand it. So you turn your head and you look the other direction. Now you're demanding information for what's over there. And the information from what's over here isn't in your data stream anymore. So I've got a window over here and I turn my head this way. I can't see that window. It doesn't mean the window disappeared. The window was never there in the first place. It just means the data in my data stream that defines that window disappears from my data stream. And so our individuality in our in the information world doesn't take up any space. So, for instance, you know, like when, when consciousness started evolving. Um, so, for instance, let's say, you know, like we're saying consciousness is non-local and then so it evolved. So it made a separate unit, but it's not really separate from the system. It's just appears to be individual there. Right, so that's not taking and that's not taking up any space? Not taking up any space. No. Wow, right. So you used to have one consciousness, and now it's broken to a billion pieces. They're all subsets of information, subsets of data, and they don't take up any space. And we just can't conceive of that because that's not the way our reality works. So we use right. metaphors that are space-like in order to communicate it, you see. But it's not like that. There is no space there, just like there's no space between your thoughts. There's time between your thoughts, but there's not distance between your thoughts. You don't have a whole bunch of thoughts, and some of them are closer to you than others. Now, some may be more up in the front of your mind. You may be more aware of some than others, but it's not physical distance. You see, it's not like the there's, you have this mind, and it's physical, and there's a thought that's over here, and then there's another thought down in this corner. It's not like that. They're just thoughts, and uh, you can access them all. You can access them simultaneously. So you can be thinking about both that $5 bill and an ice cream cone all at the same time. You can't just, you don't have to just think of one and then think of the other. You can think of them both at once. And those, and those thoughts don't take up any space. Like the ice cream cone, it doesn't take up any space. No, it doesn't take up any space whatsoever. No, when you travel out of body, you're not taking up any space there either. All those adventures and you fly around and go to different lands and places, there's no space. It's just information in a data stream. You've just switched to a different data stream and you're interpreting that data. And we tend to interpret it in terms of our habits of 3D space. That's another good reason to be very skeptical of what you get because you're getting this data that isn't necessarily meant to be in a 3D interpretation, but that's the way we interpret it anyway because that's all we can do. Otherwise, we can't think about it or talk about it because until we put it into our, our metaphors of 3D, it's unspeakable and unthinkable, you see? So we go out in an out-of-body state. We get data from a data stream, and whatever that data stream is, we turn it into a PMR-like experience. We have sense data. We saw things. We heard things, you see, seeing, hearing, sense data. We turn it all into sense data because otherwise we can't process it. 
because that's all we know how to process because we're immersed in this avatar and we have to see things from the avatar's perspective and rule set. We can't do it any other way. So that's, you know, so what you, what you see here and smell in the non-physical isn't necessarily what's there. It's what you have interpreted to be in terms of this physical reality. So we, we, we have to kind of get out of the idea that what we, that all the data is from things. Well, that pretty much works in this virtual reality because we get sense data from our avatar, but it doesn't work so well for us when we're in the virtual reality. So that's why you need to be very skeptical because you're interpreting it and you don't know how much of it is the way it was and how much is just your interpretation. And if you're fearful, your interpretation turns every bean into a monster with three heads and long teeth. They might not have been monsters with three, you know, with long teeth at all. Right. But that's what you see because you're afraid. So that's why I say when you're there, you see, you tend to see what you, what's in your mind because you interpret the data according to what's going on in your head. Now the data is, is real. It's outside of you. It's not yours. It's not your imagination. It actually is objective out there data, but what, how you interpret it, that's entirely your own thing. And everybody interprets it differently because we all have different experience sets by which we interpret. So that's, so now you kind of get the idea that out of body reality is not really a place full of things and objects. It's, it's a data stream that we interpret. Now it becomes a lot easier to just think, oh, I don't need a ritual. I can just teleport around because I'm not really going places. I'm just switching data streams. Now, if you have that concept, then why should I have a ritual to switch data streams? The old data stream switching ritual that you have to go through. You have to first get way out there foggy and then you have to lose touch with this. And then you have to get the vibration. You have to go through all the stuff so that you can go through the, the data stream switching ritual. <laughs> when you think of it like that, it's like, well, you know, that doesn't really make sense. And you just switch data streams. You know, it's like you push a button, you know, and uh, you get in a different data stream. It's like uh, clicking on a, on a, on a website and you got a different data stream to your computer. When you click on that website, than you do if you click on the other one. Well, that's the way it works in the non-physical, but we just keep interpreting that non-physical as the physical. And that gives us all kinds of problems and beliefs that, that aren't functional. Thank you. Makes us, yeah, it makes us think that there's all this space out there. It makes us think there's this park, and we can go to this park and hang out with Bob Monroe in his park. See? And um, we take that very seriously. But it's just an interpretation. It was Bob's interpretation. And you can go hang out in his interpretation, but you see then in order to hang out in his interpretation, you have to take on his interpretation. That's not particularly functional. You ought to take on your own interpretations and have your own trip and not try to take somebody else's, you know, not have somebody else's experience. That's really right. kind of a, a dead end trying to have other people's experience. Right. And that's a very difficult concept to understand. Like, I can understand everything else, but I just, I guess I just have to grow into it because it's the, I don't understand, like, you know, like information is real. And I'm thinking that objectivity would equal space. You know, it's like if information is real, then what is information existing in? You know, it had to exist in some type of potential space or space Nothing. or like. No, wow. you're just, your concept's just wrong. Just you just come to the conclusion is that I can't comprehend it, 
right. because, <laughs> because I have to translate everything into space. You see, so I can't comprehend it. I just know that things that aren't physical don't need space. Things that are physical take up space. So to the elf, all the stuff in the world of Warcraft map takes up space, right? It's just the way it looks to that elf. Everything takes up space. Well, it's just virtual space. That elf has to knock on the door and open the door. He can't walk through it. You know, things are solid and they take up space and no two things can exist in the same spot. That's true in the elf's world as well as ours. It's a virtual reality and that's the rule set. So that's the way it works here. But that's not fundamental. That's just virtual reality. Makes a nice, makes a good game though. I mean, how could you play a virtual, how could you play an elf in a virtual reality game if there were no space? You couldn't, you know, they have just one big pixel in the middle of your screen, right? There's, there's no motion. There's no space. You know, there's no motion. It's just, it's just like one pixel. And we're all individual, right? And, and uh, so are we not taking up our individuality as individual units of consciousness? Doesn't take up, we're not taking up any space as individuals? No, we're not taking up any space. We're just different sets of information, probability and information. Information doesn't take up space. Information doesn't weigh anything. It doesn't take up volume. You, know, you, can, you, can read a, you can read a book. You can read My Big Toe, and you get a lot of ideas out of it and a lot of thoughts. Well, how much space do those ideas take up? Does your head get full of them to where you can't get any more in? Well, we use that as a metaphor, but no, that's not right. They don't take up any space. They're just, they're just there. Thoughts don't take up space because they're non-physical. Ideas don't take up space. Wow. You know, otherwise, you, your head would get full and you wouldn't be able to read anything else until you, you, know, until you uh, dump something out. But it's not like that. You just keep dumping stuff in and dumping stuff in and dumping stuff in and it just keeps adding. There's no space. None of it takes up any space. And it just doesn't keep adding space. Like, you know, for instance, like if it, if it started space, you know, it, it may not have to, it, it may not reach a limit, but it may be limitless. You know, so like it's always, you know, because like it was one time we were saying like uh, I, I was reading and you were saying that, that infinity is just a, <clears throat> a calculation in the computer. Like infinity really doesn't exist. But the, right. the way I was looking at infinity was just like expanding forever. You know, like it really yeah. wasn't a, a point that you would, that you know, that one would get to. But it's just right. that. Yeah. And forever doesn't really exist either. You see, it's the same sort of thing. You can just keep expanding. Yes, you can just keep expanding and keep expanding and keep growing and keep evolving. And there's no end to that. It's an open-ended thing. Okay. It doesn't have a, it's not like one day you can say, oh, now we're only three days away from forever. You know, like there's like there's some point called forever and we're eventually going to get there. You see, it's not like that. Forever doesn't exist any more than infinity exists because you get to where you thought forever was and you just keep right on going. So, so forever of, is eternity? So it's, it's like eternity? You so can call it that. You could even call it infinity if you want. You can use these terms. You see, we make up words so that we can express these ideas, but don't take them too literally. You know, infinite, there's nothing real that's infinite. And we, you know, things that go on for eternity are going forever. Well, that's a good concept, but we, as long as you don't have to define that forever as meaning anything other than more, more to come, well, then that's fine, you see. But if forever, as soon as forever becomes a point, 
well, forever is going to be, you know, exactly, you know, 6,000 years, you know, so many days, so many hours, so many minutes, so many seconds from now, that's forever. Well, that's just nonsense. There is no forever. You see, forever is just an idea. Infinity is just an idea. You just keep going. So yes, this, this evolution will probably, will keep going until it runs out of options. It gets to the points there are no more useful choices left than it may run out of options, but uh, that doesn't seem to be happening. And the more complex it gets and the more it understands and whatever, the more choices there are. So it's making choices as it evolves. It actually is creating more choices as it goes. So it doesn't seem like it'll ever run into a, a stop where there's just nothing else to do. We've done everything that's possible. But, you know, just that's, that's again, living with uncertainty, living gracefully with uncertainty, you know, is this, you don't know where it'll end. There is no terminus. It just, it goes, it's open-ended and it'll always be that way. It'll always be open-ended. You'll never get to the, you'll never get to infinity. You'll never get to forever because those two things are just concepts, just ideas. They're not real things. Thank you. Thank you so it's much. Very, it's very hard to get your mind around it. I understand. And the reason it's so hard, a lot of people struggle with it. You're not alone. You're in the, you're in the big majority of people that struggle <laughs> with these ideas. And the reason they struggle is because they try to think of it. They want to think of it and put it into terms that make sense. But just thinking of it constricts it to a 3D virtual reality kind of ideas and concepts, because we can't think in terms of anything else. We just, so it's not like I'm struggling with this idea of no space. You might as well stop struggling. You can't think clearly of no space. You're not equipped to think of no space. You see, it's just not in your ability because you only have an ability to think in terms of space. So you can't do that. Anything that you can think of in your mind takes up space because that's just the way reality must work. Well, it's not necessarily like that. We're limited by our 3D viewpoint. And we don't have language. We don't have words. We don't have concepts to deal with anything else. So that's outside of our ability to deal with it. You run in the same thing with math. You see, in math, you can have 10 dimensions, 20 dimensions, 500 dimensions, and they're all orthogonal. And we say, what do you mean? You got 30 orthogonal dimensions. Well, that's not hard to do in a matrix. You can you can have a matrix and it may have 30 orthogonal dimensions. Well, if you try it in your mind to see 30 arrows all perpendicular to each other, all coming from the same origin, you'll go insane because you just can't picture that, you see. But then here's the math. The math is it, and it can compute what happens in that space. The math can deal with it. In other words, the logic is there. We just can't think of it. We can't envision it. We can't make it intuitive. It just is beyond our comprehension. But it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. There's the math. It's got all those different dimensions and things, and it's perfectly clear, all the logic. It's got rules. It obeys all these rules. So it's a real thing, but we can't imagine it because we can only imagine three different directions that are orthogonal to each other because we live in 3D space, and we just can't imagine four or five or six or 30 but they're all there and they're all manipulative and those spaces work just like ours. And the mathematician can tell you just how, how things happen in those, in those spaces, but we can't get 
our minds wrapped around it because our minds are locked into a language and we think in terms of language. Our language has grown out of 3D space. So that's what we think. So you're struggling to get your arms around it, but your arms won't fit around it because you got 3D arms and they just won't fit around ideas that big. So you kind of have to look at the logic of it, just like the math. And you can say, okay, I see the logic. I see why you call it that. And I see why it's there. And that makes sense. And yeah, that would seem to how it would have to work, but it's just not something I'll ever feel intuitively comfortable with because it's not part of my concepts that I can deal with. So that's kind of what's going on. That's why you're struggling, but you might as well give up because there is no end to your struggle. You're trying to do something that's impossible. You're trying to take your 3D concepts and somehow describe, you know, non-physical reality. You can't do it in terms of your concepts. Your concepts aren't big enough and broad enough to describe that. Just like we can't describe a 10-dimensional, you know, mathematical space. doesn't mean anything to us. We can calculate it, but we can't have an intuitive sense of it. You see, it's just sort of the same way. So it's logical. It doesn't mean those 10-dimensional spaces don't exist. Surely they exist, but they don't exist as physical, like we understand it. We can't have any intuitive sense of them. So don't, don't feel like you failed and some failure of your understanding to actually get a good grip of it. It's not a failure of your understanding. It's just your limitations. You can't get a good grip of it. Let it go. Find the logic. Make it understandable. Realize what the logic says that it has to be that way, just like the 10 dimensions. They're all orthogonal, believe it or not, even though we can't imagine it. You just have to say, well, that's that's the logic. That's the way it is. And uh, I'll still talk about that 10-dimensional space, even though I'm not quite sure what that means. You see, I mean, what is a 10-dimensional space? How does that work? Well, we just can't go there. Our minds don't process that way. We're stuck because we, our consciousness is is totally immersed in this one experience. We have, we see everything this way. So it's just a a limitation that you can't get past. You just have to get comfortable with why it makes sense and then go on. I hope that helps, but I know it's a tough thing and I know you struggle with it. Physics students do this all the time. When a physicist finally takes his first course in quantum mechanics, they're all going nuts trying to find what's waving. What do you mean wave function? What's waving? What's going on? What's moving? You know, a wave is something moves, right? It goes up and down, up and down. It's got frequency and all this stuff. Well, these waves have frequency too. Frequency, back and forth, up and down. What's that mean? It's spatial. No, this is just a probability wave. You know, what the heck's a probability wave? Is some sort of probability going up and down, you know, back and forth? No, that's just the way, you know, we model the wave because it gives us right answers. It's just math. Don't worry about it. You know, shut up and calculate, right? The, the famous uh, Feynman phrase. So it's, it's that thing. And I did that too. When I was first into quantum mechanics, I was just scratching my head and I just can't get my hands around this. I just don't understand it. I don't know how it works. I don't have an intuitive sense of it. And then I finally, the idea of shut up and calculate finally broke through. And I realized that, well, I can work with this and I just have to give up, you know, with some kind of a, of a uh, physical 3D sense of it. It isn't a physical 3D thing. 
So it's a it's a struggle that you finally have to come to terms with. Hmm. All right. The world, Thank you. The world is bigger than our little three D than our little three D vision. You see, that's the point. Reality is a lot bigger than our little three D virtual reality, and we're trying to imagine this big reality from this tiny little viewpoint, and you just can't see it. You know, it took me a long time to. I was um, really studying your videos, and it took me a long time to understand the double the double slit experiment. And I just had to keep on going over it and going over it and going over it again until I realized that all oh, you know the particle and the wave function are in two different reality frames. And so that's why if you turn off the detectors in this reality, it's not really detecting the particle here. It's, it's detecting, I guess, the other the wave function of the particle in another dimension. Uh, and so, I, I don't know, I'm just so confused about the space part because it, if the particle is existing and it's going, it's traveling in space and then if there's another part of the particle, which is a wave function, that's separate also. And there, uh, I don't know, that's just so confusing <laughs> to me. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the thing. You, know, you used a metaphor that they were just in two different realities. Well, that's a metaphor that you could use. You know, science doesn't doesn't use that metaphor, but that's a perfectly good metaphor. They're two different spaces, and people want to make all of reality the way they experience it. Um, well, there is one comment, because you were talking about Bob's Park and taking on someone else's interpretation of things. Uh, there are some people who, scientists included, scientists and explorers of consciousness, um, and I know you have always been, you and Dennis and the, the beginnings of Monroe Institute have always begin, been drug-free pioneers. But there are people who have tried ayahuasca that are physicists and scientists and explorers. And isn't the danger there that you do take on someone else's interpretation of reality? Um, you've, you're you're um, giving control over to something and something else. What would you... Well, that's one, of the, that's one of the problems because you are creating this, this um, situation where your perception changes, right? You're no longer just perceiving the physical world. You perceive something different. But is your perception molded by the drug or are you just set free by the drug? You see, that would be a difficult question. I suspect your perception is done some of the both some of them is it's set free from the drug at least it's free of the of the physical but is it also molded by the drug in other words is what you perceive um in a lot of ways constrained by the drug that you take well that's uh, that's one of those things that there's no way to really know that for sure because you can't be in two places at the same time here you can't take the drug and not take the drug and have a similar experience that then you can go compare. They're two different reality frames. You see, it's it's uh, no way to check one against the other. So that's one thing. You may be constrained by the limitations of perception based on drug. It's not necessarily true that the that the drug just sets you free and doesn't doesn't alter other other uh, facets of your perception. The second thing is about about the drug is that. Whenever you use a crutch or, a, or something else to help you get someplace, you're losing part of your ability to do it on your own. So let's say that you never, when you were, 
When you were uh, one and a half year old and went to learn to walk, your parents stuck crutches under your arms and you've never taken a step without a crutch because they didn't want to see you fall. So you've only walked on crutches your whole life. You've never taken a step without a crutch. Well, you've been able to get around just fine, but you're limited. You're really limited. You're not very good at soccer. You don't play football too well either. You, uh, you know, you're not much of a long distance runner. You know, there's lots of things you give up because you're using those crutches. There's a lot that you give up. You just don't do very well because now you're dependent on those crutches. Take those crutches away and you don't have enough muscle in your legs to stand up. You can only walk where you have crutches. So you see what you give up? You give up a whole lot of functionality because you're stuck with the crutch. That's the problem with the drugs. When you use a drug, you're using that as a crutch to switch data streams. So now you're no longer in this data stream. This data stream has been blown away. Now you're getting some other data stream or maybe a, a conflagration of 10 other data streams all pouring in at once. Or maybe you have no idea because you're not in control. The drug's in control. So you just get whatever happens to come in and you go, oh, wow, awesome, man. And, you know, it's really different. But it's not a lot different than getting on a roller coaster ride. That's pretty awesome, too, you know, and you have a totally different experience there. It's not like any that you had walking around. So you get this experience, but you can't repeat it on your own. If you want to do that experience again, you got to go take some more drugs. You see, that's your crutch. You can't get there without the crutch. And the crutch is limiting because if you were in control, if you could get there on your own, you would be in control. You'd know where you were relative to where you'd been. You'd understand what happens if you turn right instead of left. You'd understand your control over that situation and what you're seeing. You take a drug and you get whatever you get. You know, you have experiences. And yes, you still have some volition in it, but it's not the same. You don't have the same control. You don't have the same abilities. You just lose an awful lot of functionality because you're using a crutch to get there and you're not getting there alone. Well, if it's like you're just stuck in the house and you just can't walk because you were born without leg muscles or something, then crutches are good things. That's the only way you're going to get outside is to, is to sit in a wheelchair or some other kind of device that forms your crutch. Well, then go use it. That's fine. But realize that that's not a solution that makes you completely functional. That gets you by in some limited means, and that's it. I'd say learn to walk, learn to run, go play soccer, you know, have a have a, an environment that you control. You don't get to the steps and say, well, I can't go up there because I'm on crutches or I'm in a wheelchair and there's no ramp, so I'm stuck. I can't go up there. There's just places you can't get to and things you can't do and things you can't see and things you'll never understand by taking drugs. Yes, you can have some experiences, and yes, they can even be consistent to some way because the drug is consistent in how it works with your body, and you'll have some control in that experience, but that's you lose an awful lot of functionality. The people that take drugs don't understand that because they've never had that functionality. They've never been in control. They've never done it on their own, so they don't really know what they're missing. So I guess if you were always on crutches, and everybody was always on crutches and, and uh, you know, you'd never miss that the fact that there was such a thing called soccer that you could all get out and run around and kick a ball around. 
you'd never known that that exists, and maybe you just wouldn't miss it. But that's the problem. That's the big problem with drugs, as I see it, is it's very limiting. And people feel like, wow, there's no limits. I just saw the whole universe and everything in it and whatever. Well, you've seen as much as you can see, but you, you, you're not really in control of what you're seeing. You're interpreting the data that's, that uh, you know, the drug gives you, that the system will give you. But it's a, it's a very big difference between taking drugs and getting there on your own. One, you have control and breadth and depth and over the experience, you can learn from it in ways the other ones you're just blasted in, you have an experience and then you crash and the experience is gone. Not so much your experience as it is, you know, you and the drugs experience collectively together. Aren't you also limited to the the shaman the shaman's world, the the one who administers the drug? Um, yes. that is you're limited to a very tiny Sure. Portion of reality that is just this. Yes, in general, that's interpretation. Yeah, when you go to um, people who have used drugs for centuries in their rituals and so on, they have very specific things they do with those drugs. It's like, all right, you you smoke the drug or you eat the mushroom or whatever, then you turn into a coyote, then you run through the clouds. Then you talk to the, you know, the great spirit, you get information about, you know, what's coming this next year, and then you come back. All right. That's a thing you can do with the drug. You can turn into a coyote, run through the clouds, talk to the great spirit and bring information back. And that then becomes part of the tradition you see of this tribe or this group. And that's how they communicate with their great spirit. And they have a shaman who is kind of in charge of that. And there are people who are good at it and get good information and those that just don't do very well. And anyway, it's that sort of thing. So if you go into that society, then this is their, they have created over centuries, these, I don't know, these, these paradigms, these, uh, these adventures or these things that you can do, but that's it. They're kind of limited. What they don't know is there's at least 6 million other things you could do if you knew they existed and had the intent to go do them. But you don't know they exist and you don't have the intent to go do them because they're just outside of your reality. So you're stuck in this small space. All right, you turn into a coyote or you turn into a bear or maybe you're a mountain lion. All right, you may have a choice of critters, but it's got to be a critter. You see, because that's the way we do things. You know, we turn into a critter and then we do some other kinds of things. But you're very limited into that scenario. And those scenarios have, have been things that worked. You know, they had somebody who took the drug, turned into a coyote, talked to the great spirit or did whatever, came back enlightened with information. The information panned out. You know, the information was go north, you know, go north. And, you know, they went north and it was wonderful. And the south all fell in a big hole, in a, you know, earthquake or something. So they said, yeah, that was really great. So then they use this path because it works. And that's how traditions get built up. Somebody does something once and it works. So then they work on it and it works more and they refine it and they get better at it and so on. But it's still a very small sliver of the whole reality. But it's all of it that they know. And they hold to these traditions. So you can go into a traditional place and they have 
set kind of rituals and things they go through. And you go through that, but you're limited to that, those concepts, that idea. Now you can go in and you can take the ayahuasca amongst people who turn into critters and go talk to the great spirit. And you don't necessarily have to turn into a critter and talk to the great spirit, but you probably will be inclined to that because that's what they'll tell you. And then that'll, that'll lead your intent, which will maybe lead your experience. But if you're not so inclined, you can go off and do other things. But do what other things? What do you know how to do? What can you do? Since you haven't gotten there on your own, you have no real control or sense of what it is. So what do you do? You just experience. Well, that's a ride on a roller coaster. You know, that's, a, that's going in the fun house in the park. It's just an experience and it's a gee whiz wow experience and it may be profound and you may see that, you know, you are one of a, of a giant, you know, universe of love and you may feel one with that love and you may come back a changed person and it may be really a big, a big deal. Doesn't mean that it's, that it's a trivial experience. It can be a very profound life-changing experience, but it's only partially your experience. And you don't have the ability to, to spread out and experience all the rest of it. You're kind of stuck in what the drug will give you and what you know. So that's one big downside. You get kind of stuck. The other big downside is that if you use drugs very often and you have these experiences, let's say you really like the experiences and you've learned a lot from these experiences and you got a bigger picture and it's made you a better person. Now this, we're just assuming all this, right? That it's done all these wonderful things for you. You're still stuck. See with just that set of experiences. Now you say, well, I'd really like to learn how to do this on my own because then I can go explore out my own way and, and kind of really get a handle on this. Well, you work at it. A year later, no success. Another year later, still no success. And you just don't have the patience to keep working at it because you've done it the easy way. You see, you've done it with the drug. It's like riding the bike. You get on the bike and you put on your training wheels and you ride it. Okay, that's good. You see, but if you get habituated those training wheels, you're stuck. But now you get on the bike without them and you fall off and you say, well, that's it. I'm not going to ride a bike anymore. I can ride it with training wheels, but you take the training wheels off and I just fall over. I quit. Well, what people who take drugs regularly often do is they can't then do it on their own, not because they theoretically can't, because they no longer have the patience for it because it's a longer, harder road and they don't have that kind of patience. So they would have taken that road the first time. They want something easy and quick that they don't have to spend a lot of time at. So it, it's, that's another trap that you can get into. Now it's not only as hard as it was before you took the drug, it's harder. You kind of dug yourself a hole to where it's even harder for you to put in the time and the energy and the effort to do it yourself. Because it just seems like that's just too much. You know, you've, you've just gotten used to it being easy and you miss the experience. So you end up going back to the drugs. So very few people who do a lot of drugs ever end up learning to do it on their own. It's not like that drug is a great first step unless you do it once or twice, learn that there's a bigger reality and that energizes you. And then you go do it on your own. Then it can be a, a decent step. But if you rely on those drugs, you're, lo you're less and less likely to ever do it on yourself. So you're always going to be stuck with the training wheels.
Okay, Tom, thank you. Those are those are good points. Did you have anything to add? Uh, only that I'm going to get an awful lot of negative email about the people from the people who take drugs. <laughs> that don't like me to say those kinds of things at all. Sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> and I tell you, they do have one good point though, and that is that I've never done drugs like that. So they can tell me that I really don't know what I'm talking about because I've never done the drug way, and that's true. So when I describe this drug way, I'm not describing it from experience. I'm describing it. Uh, from what I think about it, which is not the same as from doing it. So they have a good point there that I'm not, uh, you know, that's not something I've done. So I don't, uh, I don't really understand it as well as I probably think I do. Like most people who use their heads to go someplace that they've never actually been, you know, there's a lot of guesswork in that. So well, that's, I think, just, uh... that's just my sense of it. You know, that's Tom Campbell's opinion for my viewpoint, but I, I should, you know, a good caveat is my viewpoint is <laughs> isn't all that educated on the on the drug experience by firsthand experience now i've known people have done drugs and i run into people all the time as i travel around and talk to people who've done drugs and my experience is that the people who've done drugs generally don't have a real firm grip on on doing it without drugs it's harder for them to do it without drugs and mostly when i talk to them their experiences are broad, but not too deep. The depth is every once in a while they see it, but it, you know, it doesn't, I mean, you can have a deep, profound experience and many of them do. I'd say most of them probably have a deep, profound experience that changes them. And uh, they get that, but they can't get too much beyond that. They don't see the bigger picture. They're not really in control. And uh, they don't seem to have the motivation to, to do it any other way. So it's just my experience. And I'm sure there are other people out there who would going to send me very unpleasant messages. because. This well, I don't know. I mean, I think you speak from, <laughs> I think you speak from the experience. You have traveled in alternate realities. Um, that is a great deal different than experiencing one tribal version of what reality is. So I think in that sense, the type of experiences that you've had are greatly different from the very limited viewpoint that you will hear people describe they've experienced. I've found that to be true. As I talk to people who have, who are, who have primarily gained their experience in a non-physical with drugs, they seem to be very limited in their experience based from my experience. They don't have the same kind of breadth and depth of experience that, that I do that they get from their dogs, although they do have some very profound experiences that are uh, important to them, but they don't have the, the I don't know. It, it's uh, it's a more, it's like training wheels. You know, it's a, you, you can have a certain bike riding experience with training wheels, but it's just not the same experience that you can have without them. It's a different sort of thing. You can have experience of the outdoors on crutches, but it's just not the same if you can get out there and run around. It's a different kind of experience. And it's just not as broad and deep and, and, and uh, satisfying. You're just missing a lot of, you're just missing a lot of stuff. And of course you don't know you're missing it because you don't, you know, you don't miss what you don't know. Right. So they don't know that they're missing 
things. But as I talk with people who do drugs, I find that it's very limited experience set that they have compared to the experience set that I've had. Yes, I think those are very valid points. Well, Tom, we'll get on to Lawrence's next question. Um, Tom says that love is the definition of a low entropy consciousness and that the definition of a larger consciousness is love. Is love an emotion or a passion? It seems as though people make poor decisions based on what they would call love due to uneducated emotional ties to the word. How would the larger consciousness system perceive love? Could the definition of love for the larger consciousness system mean life eternal without deletion? No, I would have to say no to most of that. Um, love is not an emotion or a passion. It's a, it's a, it's a way of being the way I'd say it. Now, it can be emotional or passionate, but it doesn't need to be either. It's, it's a way of being. It's a way of, of interacting. And people make poor decisions on what they would call love, but that's because what they're calling love probably isn't love at all. Most people, when they fall in love, are actually falling in need they find somebody that meets their needs and who they can meet their needs and they're falling in need with each other. And there is a, a uh, unfortunately, mostly temporary uh, um, feeding of, of egos on both sides and that then passes for love. So what a lot of people call love is probably not love at all. It's A lot of it is, is need and ego-based. Some of it is fear-based. You find somebody that just really makes you feel less frightened, who makes you feel comfortable and safe, you know, then that's can easily be confused with love. But what they're doing is decreasing your fear. Love is a, is a way of interacting. It's a way of being it's, it's caring, compassion. See caring and compassion. They're not just emotions. There's their ways of interacting. You, you interact with caring and you interact with compassion. You interact with a uh, um, sense of other as opposed to a sense of self. These are ways of relating. So it, it, love is a way of being, not an emotion or a feeling um, or passion. Although that way of being, you can be passionate in that way of being, you see, and you can, ha you can experience emotions in that way of being where you you know, you, you're, you're emotional in your passion, or I mean, emotional in your caring, or emotional in your, in your compassion. That's possible too. But that's not what it fundamentally is. So the larger consciousness system uh, perceives love as, you know, it, it's not how the system perceives love. The system kind of defines love as, as, uh, something that lowers its entropy, something that makes it evolve. And because consciousness is a social system, because there's lots of individual pieces, that means it's cooperation. It's the building up of information as opposed to tearing it down. It's content as opposed to randomness. It's, um, you know, that's the connection between low entropy and love is that, that, uh, you're this information system. You survive by lowering your entropy. And because you're a lot of interacting pieces, you do that with cooperation and caring and building up quality content. 
It's the quality of the content that's important. The usefulness of that content. And then that kind of gets that gets defined as love and from the larger conscious system. Now we are here to evolve, which means we're here to develop our caring, our compassion, our sharing about other instead of just about self. So that's you know, that's low entropy behavior. That's behavior that builds and creates and and uh and uh grows. So that's kind of the connection. The love, a lot of things we call love are not really are not really so much love. Love is a caring, a cooperation, a lowering of en- a lowering of entropy. It's a way of being. I don't know. I feel like I probably haven't answered that very well, but I don't really know what else to to uh to say about about that question. Is there anything that, that you want to ask that would maybe bring something out? Um, I I think you answered it, it answered it really well. I I was just wondering um, because I know like a lot of times like when people say that they that they're in love with one another, sometimes they do irrational things based on on that that em- I guess the emotion that they're attaching right. to it. And yes, uh, they, they do, and sometimes there really is some components of love in it that it is about other, and they are they are cooperative and and they do have some compassion. But that's usually just a part of it. There's another part of it that has to do with fear and with ego, and and uh, you know, with getting what you want and what you need. You know, you've got these needs, and you find somebody else that meets your needs, then you call that love. And if you meet their, if you meet their needs too, then then you you know you're a you're a couple because you're meeting each other's needs. But most of those needs are probably ego needs. You see, that's. You know, that's not really, but it doesn't mean that there isn't any love in it. There still may be some caring and compassion in that, but there's, there's more. It's not just love. There's some, you know, most of the, most relationships have, have a component of love, but that component could be anywhere from two or 3% up to 50 or 60% or maybe even 90%, you know, but typically it's not the whole, it's not the whole thing. And just your average, your average couple that have pair bonded, it's probably, the smaller percentage, probably the bigger percent of it is meeting, meeting needs. And the needs are generally have to do more with fear than ego and belief than they do really have to do with compassion and love. But there's almost always a little compassion and love and caring in a relationship as well. So it's not just black and white, all one thing or the other. It's a mixed, it's a mixed bag. And those people that the relationships are 75% love, you know, and 25% uh, ego, they probably have really good relationships. They really care about each other, but they also have ego involved in it as well. You know, so it's those that are the opposite are 75% ego, you know, and 25% love. They're probably more normal and they probably find themselves at odds and, and squabbling with each other and each of them trying to get what they need out of the other one without giving too much, you know, and that sort of thing. It's a constant uh, struggle going on. Lawrence has a third question on on YouTube. Ray Kurzweil has videos where he speaks on immortality. He predicts that humans will reach immortality by the year 2045 through the exponential growth of technology. Would you agree with this statement? Is this true, what what this would mean to the human society as it relates to our understanding of consciousness and reincarnation? 
Will humans ever get to a point where we don't have to go through the reincarnational transition and live forever? Well, we humans already live forever. It just depends on what we call we humans. If we're talking about our consciousness, our consciousness already is immortal. You know, we don't, uh, the only thing that, that uh, Ray Kurzweil is talking about is your avatar, is this virtual avatar, is your elf immortal? You know, well, that's really not too important. But in his picture, it seems to be very important because if you're just all physical based, then that's, that's, that's where all the importance is. But do I agree with the statement that uh, 2045 will we'll, uh, live forever? No, I think that's, uh, you know, wishful thinking. And I remember back in the 1960s when the reports of all the people in the know were that within a decade, cancer would be gone. You know, medical science was very quickly understanding cancer and coming to be able to control it. And within a decade, we expect that there would be no more trouble from cancer anymore. It would go the way of, of um, you know, smallpox or something. And, of course, that's not true. What we find, uh, you know, 40 years later is that there's more cancer. It's more prevalent than it's ever been. And in the 70s, they made the same prediction again. And in the 80s, they made the same prediction again. And I see that uh, almost every decade, cancer is going to be gone in the next decade. And of course, it's nothing of the sort has, has happened. I think this is more of the same. You think we think we're doing really, really good with our technology, and we just imagine where it could go. And most of that's just imagination. So no, by 2045, I'd be surprised if the lifespan was was uh, unending. Just people just kept going on and going on. Probably a, a wishful dream. Will it ever get that way? Well, probably not. Even if we say, well, what about a million years from now? Probably not. And the reason I say probably not is because that kind of ruins the whole purpose of the virtual reality, doesn't it? I mean, the whole idea in the virtual reality is that you continue to grow and evolve. Well, the older you get and the more experience you have, you tend to get yourself boxed into a corner. You end up painting yourself in a corner. You get beliefs. Well, I believe in these things. It's hard to get out of those beliefs. You know, once you take on beliefs, it's really hard to blast somebody out of a belief. We talked about that earlier. You know, the Jehovah's Winston's come knocks on your door and wants to tell you why you need to become a Jehovah's Witness. It's just really not any point arguing with the gentleman. You know, you're just not going to blast them out of that belief. So once people get stuck in beliefs, they're stuck. You're going to be stuck forever. You know, let's say by the time you're 70 or 80 or 90 or 120, you know, you figured it all out and you've got all these beliefs. What's your rate of growth? Your rate of growth is getting really, really slow because you've you've got all this misinformation. You think you know a lot more than you do. You've painted yourself into a corner. You can't let any new data in because it conflicts with your beliefs. You're just not, you know, you're not getting anywhere anymore. Okay, you're only 120 or 130 years old, but your usefulness is just about over. No matter how long you can keep your avatar going, you know, no matter how long that body goes, you've just about become dysfunctional because you've worked yourself into a, a corner. And that's generally what happens. There's not that many people somewhere in their 80s and 90s say, oh, I got a whole new view of the world. You know, gee, my 90th birthday, you know, I just see everything different now. Human nature doesn't work like that. Now, maybe uh, technology is going to change human nature as well. 
typically it happens the other way around. By the time we get old, we start shrinking in to our viewpoints. And if it was hard to blast us out of our beliefs before, it gets really hard to blast out of your beliefs the longer you've had those beliefs. So the whole point of this virtual reality then start to grind to a halt. And what would you have? You have a bunch of people walking around who were who make the uh, the Jehovah's Witness seem like they were open minded, right? Because they're now all 300 years old and they're all committed to this is that way. And, you know, either they kill each other or they, uh, you know, become totally intransigent and open, not open to new things. But I don't see any of that happening. I think it's a it's unlikely because it ruins the very purpose that the virtual reality was created in the first place. And Mr. Kurzweil may think that we'll beat all the diseases we know, but if if uh, if living too long becomes a problem for the larger conscious system that runs this simulation, it won't have any trouble at all <laughs> finding a solution to that problem. All it will have to do is invent some kind of little bug or some sort of disease or an earthquake and a tsunami and a snowstorm and whatever else, and the population will reduce dramatically. Now, it's just so easy for the larger conscious system to control the not living forever. It's such a trivial matter, and if it ruins the larger conscious system's uh, trainer here, it's no longer a very effective virtual reality trainer. My guess is that that just won't happen. That um, Ray is uh, talking about wishful thinking. He's in that same boat as the people back in the '60s who's going to see cancer gone in you know in a decade. He sees it as a possibility, but as a probability is a is another different thing. I say it's a very low probability. We'll get we'll get to there. And if we if we live that long. Does that mean our aging is just slowed down so that we, you know, we're old. We're still hobbling around on canes and walkers, but we can hobble around on a cane and a walker for 300 years. Or is that we uh, only get to, uh, you know, 18 and then we quit. We don't age anymore after 18. Well, does that mean we still stay foolish or does that mean our mind just keeps right on going? And now we're a bunch of 18 year olds that act like we're 110. You know, because we've blocked ourselves into corners with with our beliefs. <laughs> I don't know, but it doesn't seem like a very nice place to be. You know, I don't see that as wow, that's utopia. You know, everybody lives forever. You already live forever if you if you realize what you are and your consciousness. So you're already immortal. The fact that you're playing this virtual reality game and you have to keep switching up avatars, well, that's a big advantage. Because you get a new, you get a fresh avatar with fresh ideas and fresh way of looking at the world, you get a whole new, fresh start with learning. I think, um, you know, that's you'd want to turn that avatar in. Consciousness may not want to come back here if it's all a bunch of avatars that were all, uh, you know, stuck in uh, belief someplace and you couldn't get rid of them. They'd have to have a natural disaster to to eliminate a large portion of them, I guess, so they could get new ones that were not so not so stuck in their ways. I just don't see that as uh, as likely to happen. But then Ray Kurzweil probably doesn't have my viewpoint of we're consciousness, we're already immortal, and this is just a virtual reality. He's probably never thought those thoughts. So in his mind, it's all physical, and the longer you can keep going in the physical, the better. And he hasn't thought too much about the quality of life, I suspect, than he has about how long it is. That's the 
you know, we, we tend to think in more mechanical terms when we think in terms of technology. Well, I can make this person live for 300 years. We don't spend a lot of time thinking, yeah, but what would that 300-year-old's life be like? You know, what, what, would the, what would the quality be like? What's the, where do we go with that? And that's a very hard thing to ponder because we've never done it before. So it's an, un, it's an unknown. But it's not necessarily, you know, we make a great leap of, of uh, logic and a, and a great assumption when we say, well, if everybody could just live longer, everybody would be just like they are now. We'd all be kind of happy and stuff. We'd, just, we'd, we'd stay happy longer. Well, look at us all, how happy we are. Look, look at the, you know, read the news, see how happy we all are, how well adjusted and how much we just love being here, you know, and we're going to do that for another 300 years. Could we stand it? You know, would, would you be able to have to pay somebody a whole lot of money just to, you know, terminate you or something because you couldn't stand the pain of it anymore? I mean, most people want to, want to get out as it is. So there's other, there's other qualities to this living a long time that have to be thought of. And that's the, you know, that's the awareness and the consciousness quality, not just can, how long can we keep a, a body going? That's a, that's a rather, uh, um, thin look at a much bigger problem so no i i think ray's probably wrong but uh that's my perspective is just a lot different than his i can see where he gets his perspective from his viewpoint he sees that as a technological possibility and uh, i see it as a very long shot a very improbable it's also would it also be very limiting tom i mean this reality is very rich in diversity and you know that from experiencing various alternate reality um if we had this same avatar we would be so limited in how we would experience exactly we'd be so ossified that's my point we'd be so painted in a corner and so ossified it would be hard to to get anywhere i mean look at the people look at where all your big bright ideas come from you know where are the big where are the big things that change us the big reality changers the, the big ideas the scientists that get the you know the, the the awards well the guy goes up to get his his uh, nobel prize he's probably 80 years old but the science he did he's getting the prize for he did when he was 28 you see when he was when he was 30 so the the, the big ideas come out of young people i mean who was it that created an internet it wasn't a bunch of 80 year olds you know, it was a bunch of kids created it, you know, the internet. The idea of people who have not yet learned that they can't do that, you know, people who haven't yet been told that it's impossible. These are the ones that actually do, you know, that's where your creativity and big big ideas come from. So now the youngest person in the in our culture is, you know, eight hundred years old. Man, talk about ossified and, and uh, nowhere to go and you know, everybody believing everything's already been done and already been thought of, no new ideas. Everybody is totally believed that uh, these things are impossible. I just don't see that as very viable. You know, it's not, it just doesn't sound like a very nice place to be. It sounds like uh, you need young people. Well, if nobody ever ages, you know, you somewhere you're going to have to not have any more children because you just can't stand the carrying, you know, carrying capacity of the planet can't take any more human beings. You got all of them, you know, it's full. Can't feed another one, not enough ground left. So 
what do you do then? Well, then the whole population just gets older. Well, well now we have to say, well, but we want young people. Oh, well, then we're going to have to get rid of some of the old ones, aren't we? Now, how are we going to do that? Oh, we're going to make up rules that, uh, you know, we kill the people after a certain age or the ones that uh, don't have, what was it, uh, blue eyes and blonde hair? Well, we get rid of those, you see, and you've got all of this, this uh, potential nastiness now coming on because you realize that you need young people because they have the bright ideas and now you get too many people and now how are you going to get rid of the ones you don't want? And what basis are you going to make those decisions? I mean, I see all kind of ugliness coming out of a, a you know, this kind of an idea that, that the avatar lives forever. I don't think Ray's thought too much about the human side of it is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking he's seen the technological possibility and he's going with right. that. And he just thinks, oh, well, we'll figure the rest of that out. You know, I mean, the rest of that stuff's easy. You know, what's hard is getting the body to go for a long time. But I think it's just the opposite. Getting that body to go longer and longer is probably the easy part. The hard part is all the rest of that stuff that, um, you know, I don't know. I think there'd be very few people who'd want to live that long, no matter what the state of their health was. I mean, we don't, like I say, as you, if you look at old people, they're not fonts of brilliant, new, creative thinking, you know, and the older they get, the more that's true. Now, maybe if you never physically got any older than 18, You'd still have that uh, that bright-eyed and bushy-tailed look, but I don't think so. You lose that bright-eyed and bushy-tailed because of your experience and your experiences and your beliefs and that kind of thing is what matures you, not the fact that your body gets older. It's your, it's your way of thinking. It's the ideas. It's what's in your head. So nobody's paying much attention to the consciousness and what that's going to do as it ages as opposed to the body. Because I suspect Ray would think that the consciousness is just created by the body. So he sees that as just another thing. Oh, we'll take drugs, you know, that'll make people more open-minded or something. We'll fix that problem with technology. That's um, what you're doing is have a bunch of old people on meds. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't sound like a very fun place. (laughs) When it's old people. People walking around, you know, even though even though their bodies are young, you know, a bunch of old people, you know, on uh, happy pills does not exactly sound like paradise to me. <laughs> right. He was he was I guess his argument was he was trying to say that that um that we won't be humans anymore. That like we, we emerge with like nanotechnology and like some so our bodies won't be the, the way that it is now. We will have like, I guess, enhanced biological parts and most of our reality won't be in this reality because there'll be so many virtual realities that we can go to that would be just like the physical reality. And let's say, for instance, you know, like he was saying, like, you, you know, you let's say you reach the age 30 and you say, oh, you know, I like being 30. So I'll just be 30 for the next 100 years or so due to like advancements in, in technology. And so he was just saying, like, instead of like us overpopulating, he was saying, like, maybe we will start expanding you know, like leaving the earth, maybe. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I can see, I can see some value in that. You know, the problem being is that if your body just stays thirty for the next hundred years, your mind doesn't just stay thirty for the next hundred years. You still get old just the same, even though your body right. doesn't change. You see, he's not looking at the other part of you. There's a there's a difference between thirty year olds and eighty year olds. Besides the fact that the eighty year eighty year olds can't run as fast, it's not just their physical bodies is the only difference. The way they think. The way they, you know, the way they 
they process data and the rest of it is just different. And that's not likely to change just because the body doesn't change. But besides that, I can see, you see, we have this virtual reality and this virtual reality has evolved humans. And humans make decisions. So once we had the virtual reality with life forms making decisions, then conscious units of consciousness would come in and play those human avatars, right? It's all on a computer. Okay, so then the consciousness come in and say, well, I'm going to play these humans because now they're making interesting decisions. I can learn and grow the quality of my consciousness using this avatar. Well, let's say that time goes on to the point that human is superseded by a robot. Well, with consciousness, some kind of computer consciousness, right? Well, if this robot, you know, I'm, and I'm taking his step one further, right? If this robot makes really interesting decisions, then consciousness could play the robot. Okay, it's just maybe the difference between playing an elf and playing a barbarian. So let the consciousness play the robot. And maybe the robot would make even more interesting decisions where a consciousness could learn faster with the robot. And if the robot got stuck in a, in a belief trap someplace, they could just punch a button and, and wipe that part of his mind because he's a robot. And he can do that. You can't do that with our biology. So maybe the characters in the virtual reality would change and the time of humans would come and go. See, that's a possibility if these robots were conscious, you know, when I say if they're conscious, if they were able to host, you know, be avatars for a consciousness and make decisions and interact. So that's a possibility, but that just would mean that in this big virtual reality, we'd go through the human phase and then we'd go on to some other kind of phase. That's not exactly humans living forever. That's humans being supplanted by something else that makes a better avatar for consciousness. So the whole point is that you consciousness needs good avatars so consciousness can grow up. So if there's some other avatar that's a better avatar than a human, then perhaps we would evolve that avatar uh, and the humans would, would go away. Maybe not. See, So if you want to just think about things like that, but if you think as the human being as a platform, as an avatar for a consciousness, then sure, maybe we could find other avatars that were better. You might think of them that uh, that uh, would make better avatars for a consciousness. And then maybe our system, our virtuality would, would evolve that. Who knows? But that doesn't really make any difference to us as consciousness. That makes a difference to us as physical bodies. Well, we're not physical bodies. They're just virtual, you see. Us as consciousness, we don't care what the avatar looks like. We don't care if it's made out of metal or made out of flesh and bone. As long as it makes decisions and we get to be the, you know, we're the, we're the consciousness and it's the avatar, then that suits us just fine. So as far as consciousness concerns, it probably doesn't care what the simulation produces as avatar as long as the avatar is an adequate uh, uh, avatar for consciousness to evolve itself. And maybe as consciousness evolves, it needs different kinds of avatars, you know, hard to say. So human, humankind might be, uh, you know, a passing uh, stage in the, in the evolution of the virtual reality. Hard to say, but that's just now wild conjecture. But if you think of the, of the human body as just a platform, it's an avatar. It's like the elf. Okay, if now all the players who are playing World of Warcraft, if they get tired of elves and the elves no longer have the capacity to do things, they need 
they need uh, things that are bigger, faster, smarter, you know, because their consciousness is so much bigger, faster, smarter, you know, they need avatars that are more challenging. Well, maybe they world of Warcraft would let the elves and the barbarians and all that stuff go for things that were smarter, faster, quicker, more challenging for a smarter, faster, quicker consciousness. So now instead of playing elves, they'd play robot elves. See, who knows? But we can make this kind of stuff up forever, and it doesn't really mean anything because it's all conjecture. So I, you know, yeah. But if we're going that that way with him, then I could see, yeah, that's a possibility. But for us, that possibility shouldn't be. Oh no, humans disappearing. What are we going to do? It ought to be. It doesn't make any difference. Avatar's an avatar. If it works for consciousness, then the game goes on and it works. You know, that's not a, we should not be identified with our avatars. We should be identified as consciousness. We're an individuated unit of consciousness. We just need a good avatar that we can get embedded with so that we can make choices and learn. And really doesn't matter too much what that avatar looks like or what it does or the world it walks in, you know, as far as the virtual reality goes. It can be all kinds of virtual realities. This one happened this one happened to evolve in the computer, you know, human beings. And now maybe that'll be a stage and we'll do something else. But as long as they serve as, as avatars for consciousness, everybody should be happy because we're consciousness. We're not humans, human bodies. We just use the human body as a, like we use the elf. You know, if all the elves went away and you got some other kind of creature, nobody'd say, oh, those elves, they were, you know, I'm sorry to see them go. It'd be, yeah, that's great. Now we, instead of elves, we got, you know, pixies or some other kind of creature that's more fun. You know, I can imagine all sorts of things be more fun than us, you know, as far as uh, avatars go. So, yeah, that's that's a win though for us. It's not like a loss that humans disappear. All right. That's just that's just a virtual, you know, virtual character in a virtual reality game. So it's not a, it's not a really big deal. Now I think Mr. Kurzweil would probably disagree with that because he doesn't see reality that way. He would think the end of humanity would be like the biggest disaster ever, from a consciousness viewpoint. The end of the end of a good working avatar would be terrible. But as long as you've got a good working avatar, then you're in business. <laughs>